0: Now, without further ado, this episode of the Daily Reprieve.
1: Let's see. Uh, welcome. My name is Bob. I'm a sexaholic and your leader for this meeting. Please join me in the um, third step prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Okay. Well, the uh, name of this se- session is um, What Do You Say to the Sexaholic? Uh, I'm sorry. It's um, What Is a Sexaholic? And uh, Dave, would you like to read um, What is a Sexaholic and What is Sexual Sobriety?
2: I'm Dave I'm a sexaholic my sobriety dates November 23rd, 1990 What is a sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety We can only speak for ourselves the specialized nature of sexaholics anonymous can best be understood in terms of what we call the sexaholic The sexaholic has taken himself or herself out of the whole context of what is right or wrong He or she has lost control no longer has the power of choice and is not free to stop. Lust has become an addiction. Our situation is like that of the alcoholic, who can no longer tolerate alcohol and must stop drinking altogether, but is hooked and cannot stop. So it is with the sexaholic or sex drunk, who can no longer tolerate lust but cannot stop. Thus, for the sexaholic, any form of sex, with oneself or with partners other than the spouse, is progressively addictive and destructive. We also see that lust is the driving force behind our sexual acting out, and true sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. These conclusions were forced upon us in the crucible of our experiences and recovery. We have no other options, but we have found that acceptance of these facts is the key to a happy and joyous freedom we could otherwise never know. This will and should discourage many inquirers who admit to sexual obsession or compulsion, but who simply want to control and enjoy it, much as the alcoholic would like to control and enjoy drinking. Until we've been driven to the point of despair, until we really wanted to stop but could not, we did not give ourselves to this program of recovery. Sexaholics Anonymous is for those who know they have no other option but to stop and their own enlightened self-interest must tell them this.
1: Thank you, David. Well, we uh, introduce the uh, panelists and then, um, uh, if we could uh, get your name, where you're from, and spread it in.
2: I'm Dave T. I'm from Oklahoma and my sobriety date is November
1: 23rd, 1990. Hi, Dave. My name is Bob. I'm a sexaholic from Sacramento, California. And my sobriety date is um, June of 94. Hi, Bob. Hello. My name is Dan. I'm a great recovering sexaholic from San Diego. My
3: sobriety date is Thanksgiving of 94. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan.
1: We'll turn the mic over to um, Dave. Okay.
2: Uh, what is a sexaholic? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that a sexaholic is sick and not is a sick person and not a bad person I think that's the thing that I've had to remember constantly we say we've taken you know it's taken out of the whole context of what is right or wrong I spent my whole life thinking that I was a bad person that I was wrong that I was a mistake and I'm finding now that uh, I was doing bad things I was doing things that were wrong but I'm not wrong. I'm not a mistake. Uh, I guess in my experience, what is a sexaholic? And for me, it was not being able to stop. Doing things that I didn't want to do and not being able to stop. Going from um, simple masturbation to uh, more complex masturbation, going from simple pictures to more complex pictures, saying, well, I'm not going to do this and then doing that. Well, yeah, I'll do that, but I'll only do this and then doing something else. Uh, for, for me, what is a sexaholic is making promises, not being able to fulfill them, never being able to make a commitment for time because I always had to leave some time in there in case I got lucky, uh, thinking everything uh, sexual, every single thing that I thought had some sexual connotation, everything I looked at had a sexual connotation. Um, everything I did seemed to be aimed toward um, getting work out of the way so I would have time to devote to my obsession, uh, or uh, getting family out of the way so that I could devote time to my obsession, uh, getting things, uh, rushing through things so that I would have time for my obsession, and then acting out and then feeling guilty and trying to make up for all those things I rushed through and feeling rotten about it, and then going back and doing the same thing over and over again uh as as I've been in the program and I watch people coming through, I find that um, uh, it seems like there are two kinds of people that come into the program. There are people who come in and say, I'm so glad I found us i so I'm so glad that I found that I'm not the only one, and then there are some people who come in and say. Well, yeah, I'm doing a lot of those things, but you know i'm unique i'm I'm special I'm different and um i as as I listen to to the insides of others and hear what they're saying, I discover that I'm just like everybody else that um, yes, maybe what I'm doing is a little bit different, but my insides are just like everybody else um Taking time to think here. Maybe I shouldn't be taking time to think, but should be letting God take care of what I'm supposed to say instead of trying to have an agenda. Um, one of one of the things that I've found out is uh, uh, that I can, it, as it says in "What Is a Sexaholic," we can only speak for ourselves. Uh, it would be very easy for me to look at society, look at the world or anything else. But uh, the idea that I can only speak for myself, the idea uh, when I came into this program, I was an expert on lots of things and I had an answer for every single thing that came up. I jumped in with an answer. Whether I knew what I was talking about or not, I had an answer and um, shortly after coming into the program to, to discover that in this program I need to say from my experience, strength and hope. That if I can't say something from my experience, strength and hope, then I better be quiet. Uh, my first first times in this program I would find myself starting to say well um I don't have any experience in that so I guess I better not say anything and boy I had to bite my tongue lots of times because I would jump in and start to say something and then discover oh I don't have an experience there so I can't say anything there Uh For me, what is a sexaholic is that this was everything in my life and that I have had to change every single thing or be willing to change every single thing in my life. It's a very slow process. Of course, when I started, it was, well, I just don't want to act out. And I took acting out as the the last kind of part of the acting out. And then, oh, well, I'm not going to do this. And it was all the sexual stuff. And then it became the lust stuff that I'm not going to do. And then I found out about the anger and the resentment and all those other things in my life. Um, I'm glad that when I came in, I didn't know about all those things or I might not have had the courage to stay. Uh, but... Um, that, yes, when I came in, everything was sexual and everything was about sexually acting out and the cycles that go with that. But finding out that everything in my life was... uh, needed to be looked at. Every single aspect of my life needed to be considered... Uh, is this valid? Is this appropriate? Is this right for me? And be willing to change any single thing. And that is a very continuous process. Uh Ten years down the road, I still find things that I run into and I go, hmm, do I really like to do that or am I just doing that because? Or... Uh, you know, there are a couple of foods that, uh, um, well, I don't like coconut. And uh, I find out I do like coconut. Somewhere a long time ago, I decided I didn't like coconut. And that just became a fact in my life. And, and if I leave everything open, then I can just go, oh, well, I really do like coconut. So as I'm as I'm going along this journey and uh willing to change uh anything that needs to be changed or willing to look at it or willing to own and say No, I really don't like tripe or um, you know something. Uh, then I, I have a basis for uh for saying what I do like and what I don't like, uh, I've got something to stand on there. I'm running out of things to say. I'm going to pass it on, and maybe I'll come back to some things after 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 a few other people have spoken. Thanks, Dave. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Yeah. My name's Dan. I'm a gradually recovering sexaholic. Um, one, one of the gifts of the program is to be able to listen to other people share and actually hear what they're saying and so what I, what I recognize over a period of time is when I was uh, in, in my uh, sexaholic stage I didn't care about anybody else or anything else um, the only thing I was focused is on me and what lust could do for me and so it's nice to be able to sit and listen to somebody else share and go oh I, I can identify with that instead of uh, trying to figure out where I was going to get my next fix um, it, it's good to see uh, some essence on here. Uh, and one of the things that I recognize in my program of recovery is is um, I've hurt a lot of you in many different ways, and um, I'm to that place in my recovery where I don't have to hide those things anymore. Um, and, and what a gift that's been for me. Um, what is a sexaholic? You know, um, and, and I can only speak for myself because um, I'm unique, just like everybody else here is unique. Um, my form of acting out is different than others. Some of it's been worse. Some, some has been atrocious. Some of it's not been as bad. Um, but I don't think I needed to be here at some level, you know. But um, the the thing that I struggled with in, in my in my life was lust. I couldn't get lust out of my brain, and I was sort of chuckling when um, when Dave was sharing because he was saying, you know, he had to stop and think about what he wanted to say next, and and I was sort of laughing because you know uh, early on in our recovery. We didn't stop and do anything except think about lust. That was the only thing going on in our brain. We could, we could care less about anything or anybody else. And we didn't know how to stop it. And now we can actually stop and think about, well, you know, what does God want me to say next? No? Uh, my form of acting out, um, and, I, and I've got this litany that I go through. I don't spend a lot of time on where I came from and I have to write it down because I, I don't, I don't think about it much anymore. I, I spent so many years in recovery. I've been in this program for 12 and a half years. I haven't had to, to use masturbation as a, as a form of escape for all of that time. Um, that's been a real gift. I was in a relationship about seven years ago, and I've got a little over six years of sobriety by the essay definition today. Um, lust was always the, the head of my list. I could never stop doing it. Um, masturbation started when I was a kid. I couldn't even tell you when. And I don't remember most of the stuff before I was 15, but I'm sure it started before then. Um, sex with self. Uh, in various different forms and with instruments and things like that that they were abusive to me. Uh, pornography. I always had an image in my mind that I could use uh, for masturbation or sex. Didn't know what a relationship was like. Couldn't tell you. Which is pretty astounding considering I was married for 17 years in a 19-year relationship. I didn't have a clue. Not a clue. And i have been separated and divorced before I got into this program. So, um, fantasy. You know, my mind was going a mile a minute. Um. Uh, uh, i didn't I didn't need you. Uh, I had enough stuff stored in my own brain that uh, I could care less whether you were there or not. you you were an inconvenience most of the time because my life was based on fear, and I didn't know how to relate to people at all. didn't want to. Um, my sexual relationships i I actually had very few because I was afraid. Um, and most of it was was a uh, result of fantasy, lust, um, masturbation, um pornography. Um, I got into bestiality at one time. Um, Voyeurism, uh, window window peeping, um, that probably has been one of the things that has brought more guilt or shame up for me than than some of the others. Um, sex with my sex with others inside or outside of marriage, um, uh, from a scriptural context, that's either fornication or adultery. Um, I did both. It, it wasn't that there were that many. It was just you know all it takes is one. You know we're sick. You know and and I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. Um, I almost molested a stepdaughter at one time. Um, You know, we we come close. We do a lot of things that we feel absolutely horrible and guilty about. And for 30 years, I've only been in this program for 12 and a half. That ought to tell you that I that I that I swallowed and carried a lot of guilt of wishing I couldn't I could stop doing the things that I couldn't do. And what the program taught me when I got into it is I am absolutely powerless over lust. But what it also tells me is I'm also powerless over the rest of my life. There's a lot of things in my life that led up to those things where lust was the focus for me, and I couldn't stop doing any of them. And that's what this program has taught me, is I, I am powerless. I'm not just powerless over lust and all the list of things that I said that I did, but I'm powerless over all the other things that I would like to have done in their places and couldn't do either. And I think that's the part of the program where um, we need to get into a situation. You know, we're sick, but we're sick in a lot of different ways different ways or for a lot of different reasons and i can't tell you why i was sick i mean i can i can explain to you what god's done to to take me out of those things today but at that point i couldn't have told you why i was a sexaholic or why i was doing what i was doing um i'm still a sexaholic i just don't act out today you know uh, i have progressive victory over lust and i have um a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of my spiritual condition that's what the program has taught me so for today, I don't have to act out as long as I stay connected to God and to you. Well, that's why I'm at this conference, because I don't want to act out today. You know, I spent a lot of years not having to act out, not wanting to act out. Um, the other thing that, that has sort of struck me is funny, because we get into, well, you ought to do this, and this is the way the program works. And uh, one of the one of my favorite lines is from Tradition 10, says, we have no opinion on outside issues. I don't know why you're a sexaholic. I don't know why you're here. I don't know what you need. OK, and and some of us go to meetings and we say, well, if you only do this, you'll stop acting out and you'll start recovering. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not anybody else's higher power. I don't know what they need. So I've done what David was, was talking about. I share what works for me, what my experience is and how I recover and what I've had to do to recover. And if that worked for somebody, that's great. Um, I think those of you who are in this room will be really happy to know that I'm not your higher power. I'm really happy to know that I'm not my higher power today. Okay? And that was like trying to control and enjoy it. You know, if I could just make this fit, if this, if I could get this into the box, I wouldn't act out anymore. And, uh, it was, it was till, you know, this, our topic is, and the conference is about absolute surrender. So I got to that place that I could let go and give God permission to be in charge of my life, including my sexaholism, I wasn't gonna recover. And it's sorta of hard to do that when we don't trust the God that we're supposed to turn our lives over to. Well, that was another piece of the puzzle. So I, I think for me that pro- progressive victory over love has led me to one specific awareness in this program. And that's one of the lines in here. It says that acceptance of these facts is the key to a happy and joyous freedom. When I could finally acknowledge that I was a sexaholic and I couldn't stop doing it, that's when the door s- started to swing open, when the rusted bolts were were broken enough that the door could start to swing open, that I could realize that God really did care for me, and that there was a way out. Well, I learned that way out from people in the meetings that had preceded me, and that's that's what I try and share. Um, I, I I think the other side of that is, and this is sort of the last part for me at this at this point. Um, today I'm grateful that I'm a sexaholic. I wouldn't have a relationship with God. I wouldn't have a relationship with any person, any other person, because I was so absorbed in myself, and I didn't care about myself. And I was so frightened that I didn't want any relationship with anybody else. So the healing comes about, you know, when we get recovery, it says in all three areas, physical, emotional, and spiritual. So I'm not acting out. I don't beat myself up and I have a relationship with God. And um, I, I'd like to say I'm completely recovered. But, you know, like the AA says, we are a group who has recovered. Well, in a lot of ways, I have recovered. But I'm on the journey that's a progressive victory over lust, and I'm still not completely cured. That's
1: why I keep coming back to meeting. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Dan. Uh, my name is Bob. and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, and um, you know the topic is what is a sexaholic, and uh, I can only share out of my own experience, strength, and hope. And for me, um, you know, when Neil asked me to uh, be on this panel, I thought, I ah, had no problem. You know, I'll just show up, not prepare. And then I looked at the uh, the little thing, and it said it was being taped, and and all of a sudden I thought, geez, I better read something. You know, <laughs> I better I better start preparing. Um, you know i I can only share um you know my own stuff and uh and, and you know um just being here and then seeing and and then realizing it's an open meeting. My first reaction was i don't want to be honest i'd rather look good you know I'd rather you know start talking some talk and be esoteric and talk about you know like the steps and this and that and totally evade me you know and so um I, I need to put that down and and talk about me. What's a sexaholic, you know? I'll tell you what a sexaholic is. It's right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sexaholic. Um, I stood up for purposes of the tape. Um, Monday, we're not talking about when I first came in. I'm talking about Monday. Um, my secretary said uh, we, we had a manager that I let go, um, and, um, and she's a pretty good-looking manager, and I always had trouble with her. Um you know, in regards to I had to you know call up my sponsor you know and 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 do that whole bit um but um um she'd been gone for about uh, nine months, and um any rate, um, she called up and she wanted some copies of some stuff in our office and um and my secretary comes in and she says, Um, you know this particular lady um wants to have she said um, she wanted this, and she wants to have lunch with you, you know, and my immediate reaction was she wants me. That's the first thought that ran through my mind, and my second thought was, I'm gonna to have to make a phone call. You see, one and then two, and then my third thought was, if I make a phone call, that guy's gonna screw this all up, you know. And the fourth thought that ran through my mind was, you know, I I real I can't go to lunch with her, and the reason I can't go to lunch with her is because when I check my motive on why I would go to lunch with her, uh, I I can walk all the way through the whole process. And, and, and I can do that today. See, if, if I go to lunch with her, there's one motive that I got, and it's all lust-related, if, if I'm being honest. And so if I go to lunch with her, we, we will start developing this emotional affair. And that emotional affair is that we'll start sharing stuff that I really should be sharing with my wife. We'll start sharing stuff verbally. You know, the stuff that's absolutely inappropriate, except that I think this isn't lust. You see, I have no effective mental defense against that first lust drink, and this is the beginning of the, of the toboggan ride. You see, what happens for me is, I start, I go to lunch with her, let's, I'm gonna walk all the way through this, I go to lunch with her, and I start thinking, see, nothing happened. Nothing. I'm clean. Everything was wonderful. Look how far down the road I've got. I've got six and a half years. I can do this. You know? And that's the way that my brain works. And then what happens, I say to myself, you know what? At um, You know, nothing happened at that one. And then um, a month later, I'll start thinking, you know, I should call her up again. You know, nothing happened the last time. And see, then I'll go to lunch with her again, and we'll get even more chummy. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, nothing's going on. It's cool. You know? And then what happens after that is, it you know, starts getting down to two weeks. Then, what happens, for me, is is that uh, there's gonna come a point in time when I'm gonna say, hey, you wanna go out for a drink? And I'm also an AA, you know, but I know the way my brain works. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna say, hey, you wanna go out? You know, like, we did it at lunch, but, um, you know, let's do it at dinner, you know? And then, I'm gonna, I, I, this is just the way my brain works, I could w- walk all the way through it. But I can walk through that whole process and say that's where I'm going to end up. I'll get drunk, and um, and we will definitely act out. And then starts the real hell. And the real hell will be that um, I won't come clean. I'll just show up. In fact, I won't even show up anymore. You know, I'll just go out there and say, you know what? I hate those people anyway. You know, you know, Bill F from England. You know, you think that guy was my friend? That guy was always making fun of me. You know, why would I want to go back to a group like that? Why would I want to go, you know, this whole disease aspect of my brain tells me that um, it just separates me from from everything. And walking through that whole process, that's exactly where I don't want to be. You see, because that intimacy that um, I would be seeking in that lunch is exactly the kind of intimacy that I can get inside of Sexaholics Anonymous. And that's what my sponsor taught me and that's a safe place. That's a place where I can come out and be me right here right now. And I could never do that before. Now, um, you know, what is a sexaholic? Um, I think that Dan, you know, really uh, went through it. You know, we got the literature, you know, um at some point in time somebody taught me that um that there's two things that would destroy me and and destroy um, you know, this fellowship, but um, I'll talk about the things that will destroy me because it's one and the same thing. Uh, number one is uh, my need to be right. And number two is my need for approval. And both of those things come from a low self-esteem. And see, when, when, before I came into this program, I would have done anything to make sure that I wasn't wrong. I mean, um, w- my wife and I would go to a therapy session and um, and what would take place would be that, uh, you know, we'd be talking about this and that and my wife would just be fuming you know, about the stuff that she really didn't quite have a name for it or anything. And all I had to do was just kind of move my chair a little bit. And before you knew it, you know, I was kind of on the same side as the therapist. And we were both trying to help out my wife because she had this problem. And she had this rage and anger. And we, the therapist and I couldn't quite figure it out. You know, that's the kind of slippery guy that I am. I mean, I will always, the thing that makes me a sexaholic, my natural reaction is to point the finger to you and to point the finger at anybody else rather than point the finger at me and say maybe it's me that's the last thing that i want to do in my head and yet that's the first thing that i got to do inside of this program and and i think that's one of the reasons i just absolutely love this program i'm going to take a, a a a little bit of a different direction what's a sexaholic and and what does that mean to me today um you know i sponsor a lot of people and um i have a sponsor and um, what a sexaholic for me today is, I know that I'm powerless over lust. It's a given on a good day. Um, but the thing that I also know is, is that um, at some point in time, I surrounded myself with a group of people that were absolutely committed to this program, absolutely committed to this program, and that um, wanted to stay sober. And and what a sexaholic to me today is is that um, um, it's a person that is willing to just admit that they're still powerless over lust today, and that that's okay. Um, In fact, that's all part of the beginning of my life, actually. Um, And 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 what what this you know a, a, a group of people are willing to do is to do whatever it takes to stay sober for that one day. And and you can spot it in somebody that really wants to get sober. And so a sexaholic to me today represents a person that is willing to do service work, a person that um, even though they don't want to go, you know, like downstairs and get a chip, is willing to go downstairs and get a chip, you know, that has a certain amount of time because they realize that it's not a chip about themselves. It's a chip to represent hope for a newcomer the aspect of lust and the aspect of service work, um, you know, in the AA stuff, they say that um, the opposite of lust is service. You know, it's getting outside of yourself. And the people that I know, that um, this was pointed out to me by, uh, by an old-time um, sponsor, you know, he said that the people that he knew that that really um, got better, you know, in his opinion, were the people that were deeply entrenched in service work. And and what I know about sex, sexaholics today is, is that the very people that um, that I just absolutely love today are the ones doing service work. I, I don't know why that is, but um, those are the people that I could really connect with. And so what a sexaholic to me today is, is that um, you know we talk about how it works, we talk about the willingness to go to any length. And part of that willingness is a willingness to take the time out to, to help somebody else out. Now... What that means to me is, is that um, when I look at um, what a sexaholic is in regards to a marriage, I was never married to my wife. We were married for a long, long time, about 15 or 16 years, and we were never married. And I was taught that inside of SA. As a matter of fact, I was taught that about three weeks ago um, inside of a meeting. Um, I don't know what I thought I was. But, um, I never had that spiritual connection with my wife. I never had that love with my wife. It was this um thing that had sex. It was this thing that had lust it was this it was like this um economic situation, but it was never about husband and wife and um for for me, I mean, I can only talk about my own experience um, That's me as a sexaholic, and um me today is. A recognition, a deep recognition that that's the truth for me, and the and and that um, I I don't want to be like that today. Um, and it's taken me a while to get there, you know. It's not like an overnight process because I always wanted to point the finger out at my wife, saying that you know if if she weren't so screwed up, then um, we'd have a pretty good marriage. You know, if she um you know didn't react like this. If let me really get honest here. If she'd work a better Essanon program, you know, we'd have this um, great marriage, you know. And and that's all not true. You know, it's just not true. But I'll do anything to point the finger at somebody else. Um, We um, have um, a lot of people here. And um, I um, really want to turn the mic over to to those people. And um, um, that's it for me. Um, I do want to end up with um, one last thing. I'm going to read from um, page 30 of the AA Big Book. Um all of us felt that at times all of us felt at times that we were regaining control but such intervals usually brief were inevitably followed by still less control which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization and um that's me um i really believe that i'm a sexaholic today and um all i want to do is uh, get one day's worth of sobriety and i want to um, be sober today and so um with that i'm going to i'm going to pass over the uh, microphone dave do you want to say anything else or? Thanks Bob
2: I'm Dave I'm a sexaholic
1: um,
2: I wanted to talk just a little bit about um, um, you know that that being a sexaholic having this disease is a current thing the things that I used to do uh, I don't do anymore a lot of my attitudes have changed a lot of my thinking has changed. But I still have that disease. I will always have that disease. I will go to my grave with that disease. I can either go to my grave sober or I can go to my grave drunk in the disease. So I still have the disease. Uh, I am not, uh, you know, when I started, I said I'm a sick person, not a bad person. And I still have the illness. I happen to think that it's pretty much in remission. That, uh, you know, I'm not in the active disease, but it's still there. And it only takes me about, well, it'd probably take me ten minutes to get back into the disease. But I choose to do that one-two that Bob was talking about very quickly, so I don't give it ten minutes to happen. Uh, You know, he talked about, uh, well, I would do this, then I would do this, one, then I would do this. Um, I think it would take me about 10 minutes to get back into the active disease. And I know from myself, I know from experience that my disease is progressing. The disease part is progressing. So if I were to go back out there, uh, it would not be a pretty sight. Uh just little things that remind me that I still have the disease uh, um, and that I'm still learning, continuing to learn. I was making potato soup the other day. It was a snowy day and I was kind of stuck in the house. And in my family, potato soup is what you make. It's like chicken soup with some people. Uh, and I was making potato soup and I was starting to get some physical stirrings. And I'm going, what's this all about? And it dawned on me that my body, my mind and my body were kind of thinking, oh, you're taking care of yourself. You're making potato soup to take care of yourself. My body doesn't know how to interpret taking care of yourself. Because the way I always took care of myself was by acting out. And so, here I am making potato soup in pretty good recovery and yet getting physical stirrings. I had to stop, stop what I was doing, make a phone call. No, I chose to stop what I was doing. I chose to make a phone call and just say, you know the dumbest thing, my body doesn't know how to interpret things, my mind doesn't know how to interpret things.
1: And it was fine.
2: But, I know that this is a disease that I will have for the rest of my life. I can either choose to accept that and joyfully work the things that I need to work or I can continually fight it. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I'm a recovering sexaholic. I was thinking of the way we've injured... Um, our other family members and you know, for a lot of us we didn't even know it I got into this program after I was separated and divorced um, I had three stepdaughters and um, and I lusted after them that's the only way I can put it and I think the reality for, the, for me in this program is um, it was like I love you but go away and that's what I taught them and as I worked through my program of recovery I realized that that's sort of what I was taught as a kid growing up too it's, it's not to discount what I did, but it's to look at it in the context of the program. And, and the serenity prayer teaches me to look at whether I can change what's gone on in the past. And the truth of the matter is, I can't go back and change any of those things. I was a sexaholic, and that was the best I could do at that point in time. What I've learned in the program today is I'm still a sexaholic, but I don't have to do those behaviors. And um, there's a there's a point for all of us. Whether we're SA or s where we have to forgive the people that, that we've hurt, and we've gotta forgive the people that hurt us. Um, because that's our recovery. It, the, the joke that was going through my mind is a uh, codependence, is that uh, we die and somebody else's mind flashes, somebody else's life flashes through our mind. You know, and we're so busy trying to take care of everybody else, that we don't realize that recovery is only for us. You know, I'm a sexaholic, and like Dave, you know, I'm gonna be a sexaholic till the day I die. But I can't fix a single other person. You know, I can't fix my ex-wife. I can't fix my Um, The recovery in this program after 12 and a half years is next month I'm getting married. And I'm sober. Okay, And I'm going to stay sober for the next 27 days. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's what I'm giving back to the program. Or that's what I'm giving back to the fellowship. Is um, not for all the things that I did that I beat myself up for. Um, I did guilt and shame really well. Also did fear and anxiety. And for those of you who may not know, that's all about yesterday and tomorrow. And that's where I lived, you know, on that boat where one foot was on the boat, one foot was on the dock, and, you know, kept getting farther apart. And what I recognize today is, as a sexaholic, those things that I did were not things I necessarily wanted to do. I didn't have a lot of choice, but I've had to forgive myself for doing those things and let go of the past that I cannot change. The other side of that is, like, like uh, Bob was talking about, I get into that fantasy of what I'm going to do in acting out in the, in the future. And the truth of the matter is, I haven't done that in 12 and a half years. And I have to stop and remember, you know, for today, even though the fantasy arrives, and I think that that's what I would do, I've made choices over the last 12 and a half years not to do those things. And today I'm sober because I make that choice today. Not because the fantasy doesn't come into my mind and, you know, my sexaholic says, aha, you know, I've heard people talk about, you know, my My addict is over in the corner doing push-ups, you know, just, just waiting for me to, to, to let go of the program or just lighten up just a little bit. And, and I think one of the keys for me in this program, and I get that because of these conferences and talking with other sexaholics, is we need to be vigilant. Okay? I always have to remember that I'm a sexaholic and I can't shake, I can't make that go away. You know? But that's the gift of, for me in the recovery today is I'm a sexaholic and I need you. I need God. I need not to try and control and enjoy it. I need to surrender it, let go of it absolutely as best as I can, and give God permission to make some change in me. And um, you know, I certainly don't want to go back to where I was. And, and I think that's probably the greatest gift. Um, I think the other side of that is, and, and uh, Dave keeps talking about us being sick, but not bad. Um, we are sick, but the, but the process of the program is, that we have to get to that place of being willing to go to any length to recover. Well, the truth of the matter is I'm as powerless as making that decision as I am over stopping acting out, and I have to go back to God and say, I can't do what I want to do. Okay, you know, I can't change you, I can't change me, so maybe I need to go back to God and ask Him what He wants to do, and then get to that place of accepting that where I am at the moment is where God wants me to be. I'm still not cured, I'm still not perfect, I'm still a sexaholic. And, you know, one of our jokes in the meeting years ago is we, we were going to be sexaholic until two hours after we died. You know, the, the truth of the matter is I am going to be. But the difference is, by the grace of God, I'm going to be a recovering sexaholic, not an acting out sexaholic. And that's the key. And I, the, only, the only way I found to get there is I've got brothers and sisters in, in these rooms that, that tell me that, not, yes, you did those things, but no, you're not doing them today. Good for you. So I've got encouragement and hope that never existed when I was acting out by myself and wouldn't tell a soul what I was doing. Okay? Nobody knew. Absolutely nobody. I would never tell anybody what I was doing. Okay? There was no recovery there. So um, we got it today, but we don't have it alone. So thank
1: you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tim. See. Now we'll begin the sharing portion of this meeting. This is a tape meeting, so please use the microphone when you share. If you feel uncomfortable being taped, we respectfully ask that you participate by listening only. Um, would anyone like to share their experience on the topic or ask a question? For those exp- uh, sharing their experience, um, you know, there's a few people in here, so why don't we limit the um, sharing to about four minutes? I think that'll that'll work. Anybody like to share?
4: Okay, you can give it a... My name is Hank, uh sexaholic. see. My, kind of awkward here. But uh, my sobriety date was um, November 8th, about 10 o'clock at night, 1991. And uh, only because my wife found out she got a tape from uh, a secretary who used to work for me saying that we had a affair and all that stuff. But eight months prior to that, uh, I contacted, uh, been married 20 years in 1990, but um, eight months prior to that, I contacted a marriage and family counselor to try to fix my wife because she was becoming suspicious of what I was doing. You know? And I, <laughs> was it wasn't me, but, you know, she needs to understand. You know? So anyway, on, on the, and so it went on and on, and she finally found out with his tapes, and and she was looking at telephone uh, I did make phone calls to different women. And that's what she was talking to me about on her telephone. Looking at the bill, telephone bills. And um we found this number. So uh, I finally confessed everything to her on November 8th. And it wasn't until 90 days later. I knew I knew nothing about SA or anything. We didn't know anything about it. And uh, I uh, cold turkey for 90 days. It was 90 days later when I found... Essay that was in February 1992, and uh, prior to that, we started going to uh, uh, other uh, uh, other meetings. Uh, we went to what was it? Um, uh, Coda meetings. Coda was the first thing we ran across. We didn't know, you know. And uh, we used to, and and it wasn't easy. It was it was um, it was something. I, it frightened me into stopping what I was doing. But I had been doing this. All my life, a lot of uh, masturbation from as young as I go back to five or six years old, I can remember playing with, my, with myself, touching myself, and teachers catching me in the first grade, telling my mother about it, and she was getting mad and spanking me. And I have a person that uh, I couldn't communicate. I couldn't communicate with girls. I, uh, I was very shy. I uh, didn't have any girlfriends going to school. I, um I think the first girl I ever met was about. Thank you for being here. I think the panel brought back a lot of things and, uh, and, uh, thank you very much. Thanks,
2: Thanks.
5: Yeah, my name is Gordon. I'm a sexaholic. And the big book on page sixty-four it says alcohol and alcohol is just a symptom of a disease. Uh, I was always searching for love and running from God. When uh, Daddy died in nineteen sixty 1960. and nineteen sixty-one, I wound up in the strong room. I checked into the Marine Hospital to get out of a relationship. And after about 21 days in there, I finally got to see, see the psychiatrist, and he told me to leave town. I said, I quit leaving. And he said, well, find yourself a good girl, and you ain't going to find her in the beer joint. I said, I'm not looking for a good girl. She's got to be bad, or I won't have nothing to do with her. All I wanted to come in this program, all I see is, well, just Lair in this book, I ain't much, but I'm all I got. He's talking about drug addiction, about the adrenaline rush. And he become addicted to his own adrenaline. Well, that's what sex did for me is, uh, it turned that adrenaline on, blocked out reality. Uh, I lived in a dream world. Uh, I have 14 years in this program now, uh, clean, one day at a time. I didn't give up anything. When I quit drinking, I got 22 and a half years sober, but I didn't give up anything when I quit drinking. I exchanged it for something better. And when I quit lusting, I didn't give up anything. I exchanged it for something better. I'm at peace with everybody and there's no jealousy in my life. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful way to live, to get a good night's sleep, except I'm suffering with a cold right now and I have to take care of myself, drinking about five... 64 ounce bottles of uh, cranberry juice, and I've got one of them left. Uh, and that was Friday when I bought them. <laughs> On Thursday, and uh, the cold isn't getting any worse, but I have to take care of it. I have to keep my system nourished and get plenty of rest. And uh, if the sec- if uh, lust if it comes into my mind. I said, okay, God, what am I supposed to be doing? I know whatever I'm doing is wrong and take my inventory and not somebody else's. And if somebody gets too close to me, I, uh, tell them it's about time I adopt you as my daughter. They says, uh, you think that's a good idea? And they usually say, no. I said, yeah, but it'll keep me from getting horny because if I get horny, the truth ain't in me. And I, I know that. Uh, it's a powerful drug. It blocks out reality. And the uh, last story in the big book, uh, in the last page of it, says uh, I got right with myself and with others and with God. And I found it beautiful. My name is Gordon. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Gordon.
5: I don't know how this happened. I didn't intend to do this.
1: (laughs)
6: Somebody measure four minutes, please. My name is Harry. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Harry. And uh just looking out the window here, I've seen this scene before and I remember when I saw it I used to think I am the pollution in God's world. And it's a lot better now. But not right now is not so good. Uh it is very good. That what's the topic? Uh what is Sesto? Oh, <laughs> would that I could forget
2: <laughs> uh, uh,
6: no, I don't want to forget, but part of me does. Uh, after the Sacramento Conference, I returned to Portland, and I'd made a phone call to get some phone numbers. Uh, at the university where I live and work. Well, actually, it's where I live. I called the maid because I called the priests and nobody would, was either there or a couple of them did said, no, I not going to your room for anything. And so I called the maid to get the uh, phone numbers where I was supposed to stay in Sacramento with my cousins. And, uh, anyway, when I got back from the conference, the superior called me in and I was informed that I had violated the privacy of the maid in her home and had harassed her. She was frightened to death of me, and uh, and at that time came out another report from the other maid that the, I had called her over the phone. I didn't know when what they were referring to. I only mean, we'll called her once in my life, and that was the day after her husband passed away. <clears throat> and but anyway, both of those were interpreted. Uh, sexually and uh, and something else that I said after that was uh, misinterpreted and maybe misreported, and I ended up in treatment, long-term treatment for uh, behavior modification. But then I was moved into the unit with uh, a treatment center for. Uh, addictive behavior and uh you know God's will wasn't around very much when I was going in to this but uh, the the point is it's been beneficial to me I still think that you know I want to say justify myself that wasn't right and it is some accomplishment with 14 I mean 13 years sobriety in SA and a pretty good reputation in SA that I enjoy very much. That I, I get sent to treatment at 80 years old. Because my behavior, behavior is addictive. And it is addictive. I mean, the things that I said could have, I mean, what I, you know, the speaking could have had, uh, It had a sexual connotation, I guess, if these people took it that way. The superiors certainly thought that a couple of these things were overheard, not heard, that were reported about me. I mean, and reported. But the point is, I realize now it it was sexual. I mean, I didn't intend it to be sexual, but I am sexual now, still, when I do not intend to be. And... uh, I guess that certainly is being a sexaholic, and the other thing is to wait for age to, you know, make it better. Or, or well, it doesn't work that way. I mean, the doctor told me for me, you know, don't count on that because your sex, sexualism, is going to be with you until three days after you die. Uh, that also is my sex addiction. The the uh, but it's still a beautiful mountain. I'm glad that I'm here. But it do, it doesn't go away with age. It doesn't go away even with with the fellowship. And I'm, and I'm not blaming the fellowship, but I mean I am a sexaholic.
7: Yeah, I'm Mike. I'm a sexaholic. And, uh, Harry told me he was going somewhere and, uh, then he said he was back at a treatment center. Hell, I thought he was a counselor or something, you know? And he said, no, I'm a, I'm a patient. And, uh, well, I'm not well yet either. I just went ballistic, you know? I thought, this guy's my sponsor, you know? What the hell? They don't, they don't, they don't realize who they got there, you know? I was going to go back and straighten them out, but, uh. A couple of guys and I, we were pretty upset, you know, but uh, what is a sexaholic? Uh, I'm a sexaholic. we're all sexaholics. but to me, the heal- I've been in recovery since uh, 1975, 12-step recovery. And uh, I was in there 12 years and I thought, what the hell I've been in here 12 years and I feel I'm still nuts, you know, And I didn't know I was a sexaholic. I was in another program. And I wasn't, feel, I see guys with 12 years, their their life's coming together, you know, mine's still falling apart, and my marriage isn't getting healed, and, and, uh, it finally came, it took me 12 years to realize, give enough honesty, that I was a sexaholic. I came in this program in, in, uh, 1987, and, uh, I stayed sober five years, you know, working my own program, and, uh, I called, uh. I called this fellow here and uh, asked him to be my sponsor. He said, I like guys to go to meetings about three times a week and call me a couple times a week, you know. And I said, well, I won't ask him to be my sponsor. I'll just call him when I need him, you know. Okay. And uh so I did. And, uh boy, I lost my sobriety after five years, you know. And I, I, I called him one time. But he just loved me through everything. That's what That's the healing thing to me. Never chewed my butt. In fact, one time he says, you know, he said, I don't think you like to be told what to do any more than I do, you know. But he just told me about himself. And, uh, I think that's why this program worked for me is, I got a higher power now that's, uh, number one in my life, you know. I, my whole life is, uh, he's got it. And that didn't come from somebody telling me what to do. I had to bump my head against the wall until I figured it out, you know. And I, it just kicked my butt, you know, in this program. Life. You know, once you get sober, then it's life, you know, then it's uh, marriages and jobs. And and uh, I just said this morning, I've never put the recovery first. It's always been uh, financial security first in the program. You know, I mean, I just fell on my face and I finally got on my knees one day. and I said, OK, God, you, you it's yours. I'm done. I'm broke. I'm broke. I'm 55 years old. I'm broke. You know, you got me here. Let's see what the hell you got, you know. And man, did he show me. You know, he just turned everything around in like a week. And I've never forgotten it, but that he knew how to get to me. You know, uh, how he knows, you know, I don't even know my checkbook number. You know what I mean? How does he know that, where to get that money and put in there? And how does he know, you know what I mean? He's got my number, and uh, I can't believe it. I, I don't even know what it is. You know, uh, Mother Nature. I was saying this morning, God, when wintertime comes, my dog's hair starts getting longer. I mean, he's got something going, you know. Uh That's what I'm trying to tune into, you know. Uh If I can just go by instinct, and that's what I'm trying to do, you know. uh we, My wife and I have been on a vacation, and we got a fortune cookie. You know, mine didn't have any fortune in it, you know. And I mean, I've had days where my sanity rested on a fortune cookie, you know what I mean, if it's a good one and uh, my wife said uh it's about time or something we should take this life one step at a time you know and that was on our, our first we came down here on a vacation kind of and that's what we've been doing you know and and it's true it's just i don't have to worry about nothing you know it's uh, it's all taken care of if i just check in and it's like my religion now is if i do if i do right i feel good if i do wrong i feel bad you know that's that simple I just want to do right. I want to feel good. You know, uh, it's a blessing for me. Harry's here. You know, Gordon's here. It's just like, geez, the three musketeers. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's good. I'm glad to be here. Thanks.
6: I, <clears throat> this is Harry. I'm a sexaholic. I have to double dip.
1: Uh,
6: what does God do with a sexaholic? Well, I didn't mention, but. My religious community still does not want me back. They're too frightened of lawsuits and some, and, uh, but at the, at the treatment centers, uh, they are reorganizing the treatment center, separating alcohol, drugs, and other, uh, compulsions from, uh, sex treatment. And this is for priests and brothers only. And I will be invited to stay and help set up the sex addiction program. They refer to Harry the expert. (laughs) But that is isn't my doing. (laughs) But I don't know whether I'll accept or not. That's God's will. You better pray that I learn to do it.
4: Thank you Hi, my name is Kathy. Hi. Um, thank you. My question is
2: um, what is a sexaholic with respect to the topic of honesty? <laughs>
3: you want to start Dave.
2: I'm Dave. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I am also a liar, a cheat. A fraud, a faker, and I will say or do anything that I need to say or do when I'm in my disease to get what my disease wants. Uh, and and it's easy to slip back into that. And when I when I talked earlier, I said, you know, when it took me a long time, and I still once in a while slip out of that experience, strength, and hope and uh when i'm when somebody asks something or says something and i can't say well from my experience this is the way it is from my from what i know then i have to go oops uh i better not say anything but i still you know i want to jump in with all of the answers and everything else um, and uh you know I'm hardwired to be a liar, and so I have to override that. And going to meetings, reading the book, saying my prayers, getting connected to my higher power is doing some rewiring there. But I'm really hardwired to be a liar.
1: Thank you, and Bob. And sexaholic. Yeah, Bob. Um, the question was, "What is a sexaholic in regards to um, honesty? You know, and how it works? You know, it we've seen a person fail.' Thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover, people who will not or uh, cannot completely give themselves to this program. Usually, men and women that are completely that are constitutionally capable of being honest with themselves. And um, I am capable of being dishonest with myself. Um, and um, what honesty means to me." is to know that about me. That um, there are times when I don't have it up here in my head of, um, of, of what it is to be honest. And what I need to do is to know that about myself so that I can talk to a sponsor, so I can talk to somebody else in the program. And when I hear that laughter on the end of the phone, I know that I've touched on something that's probably pretty doggone honest. Because there's a, um, you know, I, I walked through that, uh, this this lady, you know, with this, um, you know, just saying she wanted to go to lunch. Um, my brain says, yeah, you can go to lunch with her. That's absolutely dishonest. Um, what I needed to do is, um, you know, what I was taught was, uh, you know, to walk through, you know, um, through the slip. That took like two minutes. And I was just kind of walking through thinking, you yeah, know, well, what would I do, you know? And I, I walked all the way through it. And then I did the fifth step with a uh, with a guy in the program and told him exactly what was going on. And his immediate reaction was he started laughing. <laughs> and when I hear that laugh, um, I know that um, he understands. I, I know it. Um, honesty has been a um, I mean, it, it wasn't like, um, you know, the lights clicked on all of a sudden, and I was all of a sudden honest one day. You know, that's not my story. <laughs> uh, my story has been that um, it's taken time to reveal more and more about um, what's really true in my own experience, and the only person I can possibly be honest about is me. Um, I, I don't know anybody else, really. I can't. I, I don't know where you've been, you know, all this stuff. I know what I, I, I'm beginning to understand. Me, and I'm beginning to understand with the help of everybody else. <clears throat> Do you know that um, the one thing that helps me to be honest the most is love. Harry said it. Mike said it. Um, when when I had an old um, sponsor, I never listened to anybody that lectured me. I never, you know, I always thought, screw you. You know, maybe you got the problem, pal. You know, I always defended myself. I was never going to look at me. When When I got hit with somebody that I knew just loved me, and it was somebody inside of this program that really, really knew me well, and I knew and one experience, in fact, it was here at a Unity conference four years ago, um, that he did something, and I knew that based on his action, that he didn't stab me in the back, he didn't say this and that. What he told my wife was, I think that nobody ever treated this guy um, nice, and I'm going to try something different. I'm going to love this guy. I cried when I heard that. It pierced me. And and there was an honesty that was created that said, um, you know what, I can come out into the open and, and 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 really be me. I I couldn't up until that point in time, and that's all part of the whole process of being honest. Sure, Mike.
7: My name's Mike. I'm still a sexaholic. Uh, I want to be. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I want to be real gentle. But uh, it's like if my lips are moving, you know, I'm lying uh, when I'm an addict. And that's with any addict, you know, or anything, you know, addictions. But I, I was in Al-Anon for 12 years, and uh, I asked that question once, and then this woman said, uh, quit asking questions that somebody needs to lie about. You know, it's like, uh,
5: <laughs>
7: and, uh, and so that's really helped me with my children, because my children are all addicted, and, and I don't ask them questions anymore, because they're going to lie to me. And it just lets, I don't have to find out. I know, I know what they're doing. I don't have to get validation from them. I'm not going to get it. So I just have to accept them that they're, they're addicts. And, and until they're sober, clean and sober, they're going to tell me what I want to hear, you know, and it won't be the truth. So I don't have to ask those questions anymore. My name is Dan. I'm a great Um This sexaholic.
3: This is from How It Works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, But many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Somebody read that first sentence to me once and it says, Thoroughly have we seen a person fail who has rarely followed our path. Thoroughly have we seen a person fail. If they don't follow the program, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna fail. Okay? We're liars. Okay? That, that's what got us there is we wouldn't admit to ourselves what we were doing that was wrong. And I, and I think the key for us is there's a part of us that wants somebody else to admit that they're lying. And that's a part of the program is I have to take my expectation off of somebody else. I'm powerless over my own lying. How can I expect somebody else to be honest? And what I've recognized since I've been in this, this relationship over this last year is I have to have the willingness to be vulnerable to another person no matter what they're going to do in response. Well, that's my recovery because I'm having to risk that somebody else is going to hear what I'm saying and jam it back down my throat. That was my experience in the past. So for me to be honest, I have to do that very carefully. And I think the the key for us in the program is we're wanting everybody else to be honest. And if we admit to ourselves that we're not honest, that's step one. I'm powerless over honesty. Okay, I'm, I'm a liar to protect myself, so I won't get hurt anymore. And the only way I know how to get out of that is to go back to God and say, you know, I'm not honest. Step two, will you restore me to sanity? Okay, And as all of us who have been in these rooms know, that's not an instantaneous process. You know, We're on a journey of recovery that we tell God what's not working and he says, fine, I'll take care of it. And then we, we go back to him and say, well, you haven't fixed it yet. You know, five minutes later. And the truth of the matter is, there's there's things that are still going on in my life that I wish were not doing that after 13 and a half years in, in 12-step programs. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not the same person, I don't do the same thing, and I have a program that works when I use it, which is going back to God and saying I'm powerless over whatever it happens to be. In this case it would be honesty. Because I still have a problem with it. You know, I don't want you to know the truth about me, because if you do you won't love me. Well that's that's not reality. Okay, that's my own fear that I'm gonna be treated by you the same way people in the past treated me. Well, if I'm honest with you and you decide that you don't like who I am or where I am, I've actually gained from it because I don't have to hide anymore. But it's taken me a lot of years to get to that place. And I'm still not, you know, I'm I'm a lot better than I was. Let's put it that way. Because when I walked in this room, I wouldn't be honest with anybody about anything. But, you know, today I'm in a relationship and I have to make that choice on a daily basis, consciously make that choice to be truthful. Okay? And there are times that, you know, I wish that I hadn't. But that but as I process it, I go back to God and say, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I allow him to let me stay in the discomfort. Well, that's what the disease was all about. But I never accepted the disease. I kept trying to push it away and push it away. And there was no recovery until I accepted that I was a sexaholic. Okay? That's what real surrender is all about. It's accepting who we are and where we are and what we're doing and giving God permission to work through it in spite of the fact that we don't like ourselves where we are that's the real key cuz i can't change you i can't change me and and that one that one page on 449 says and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today it doesn't say some of them or occasionally or it might work if you think about it or you know if if you if you if you say the right words that's not what it says it says i have to get to that place that i accept the fact that where i am and what i'm doing is not what i want to be doing and then give God permission to be God. Okay. If I couldn't change me, why would I want to think I still can? After all these years in program, I mean, that's the part that's that's the insanity for us. And you know the definition of insanity, trying the same thing over and over, expecting different results. It doesn't work. It never worked for me the first time I did it. It didn't work for me the thousandth time I did it. Maybe I would finally get to that place of recognizing I can't make that change that I want to have occur in my life. So, um, I want to be honest I can go back to God and say I'm not honest and then give him permission to bring honesty out of me in spite of the fact that I don't know how to do it. That's the key to the program for me. So thanks.
1: That's all the time we have um, for sharing. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. This is an anonymous program, so please keep the name and number of anyone you meet or learn about an essay or essay on to yourself. What we say here, let it stay here. After a moment of silent meditation, um, Harry, can you please lead us in the um, serenity prayer in a circle?
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.com.